Coming up, the Sweet 16 is set, as there were plenty of shockers and upsets littered throughout the weekend. I'll look back and look ahead to see what possibly lies next for the tournament. A longtime face of the Braves franchise, the reigning World Series MVP, and Carlos Correa went where? Lots of player movement to discuss as the baseball season commences in two and a half weeks. Speaking of which, the NFL barged their way to the top of the news cycle, <laughs> no surprise, as several players found new addresses, including a one Deshaun Watson going to Cleveland. The Florida Panthers may have made the biggest trade before the deadline as teams jockey for reinforcements before 3 p.m. today. And the latest, what's going on in the association as LeBron James surpasses yet another milestone. Fasten your seatbelts, people. You're in for a wild ride as I navigate every corner of the sports galaxy. I'll have it for you in a matter of moments. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Spring has officially arrived. The new season is here. The birds are chirping. The sun is out shining. The weather has been pretty mild. Let's hope it stays that way. But with a new day, a new week, of course, comes a new podcast, as I have plenty to get into with all that's going on in the world of sports, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me for now 243 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, March the 21st, in the year of our Lord, 2022. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what's to expect on this podcast, is as follows. The trade deadline in the NHL is at 3 p.m. today. And the Florida Panthers may have made the biggest move so far over the weekend, trading for longtime Flyers captain Claude Giroux. Which teams will look to fortify their roster as they make a push to the Stanley Cup playoffs with the baseball season on the horizon just two weeks from this coming Thursday? Of course, you know a lot of player movement was going to take place over the course of the past week, and you got that and then some. Where you have Freddie Freeman, no longer the face of the Braves franchise, going to L.A. Trevor Story signing yesterday to the Boston Red Sox and not even to play shortstop. And Carlos Correa, speaking of shortstops, goes to Minnesota of all places. 
I'll have a complete breakdown of all the latest that's happening in Major League Baseball as we start to warm up a little bit to opening day, as I mentioned, just two weeks from this coming Thursday. Also, everything that's happening in the association as their season is getting into the home stretch, the final leg of this 82-game regular season. LeBron James at it again. What more can you say about the guy as he eclipses another milestone? Not only that, but also what's happening with Steph Curry and the injury that he suffered early on this week. All that's happening there in the NBA, as well as the NFL. And boy, what more can you say when you look at the last week when it comes to player movement? The biggest one being Deshaun Watson getting traded from Houston to Cleveland. And not only that, signing on the dotted line for $230 million guaranteed. You know I have a lot to say about that. Anything and everything that you can shake a stick at when it comes to the world of sports, including my hero and zero of the week. If you've listened to the podcast over the last, let's say, few weeks, but even go back as far as January, when we started to talk about what's going on in college basketball as we're leading into February and obviously into March, how this was probably going to be the most wide-open tournament that we've ever seen. And as we talked about last Monday, we knew that, yes, there are teams that we're going to focus in on, there are teams that were ranked one in each of the regions, as we've seen, whether you're Arizona, Baylor, Kansas, and obviously Gonzaga. And with those teams being the likely number ones and no argument across the board, but even as powerful as those teams have been all year, we knew that anything could happen in this tournament. You could say that for every year, but this one in particular, it was one that we were looking to pay attention to and looking to see if there were going to be any of these teams that were going to make their mark, not only to get themselves deep into a Final Four run and, of course, a national championship, but even more so on the flip side, teams that were probably going to be either upset early or there were going to be some warning signs that these teams may not last long for this tournament. And after what we witnessed over the past four days, not only has it been that, but then some. As I have just plenty of storylines to get to, this was a weekend that you could have pulled names out of a hat and thought if certain teams were to make it or certain teams were to move on to a Sweet 16 as where we're at right now after the frenzy four days of the tournament and the madness becoming even madder than we ever expected. And now as the dust has settled over the weekend and we could take a big giant exhale from all the basketball that we watched, And it's interesting because when we start off here, and yes, we could talk about the double-digit seeds that have made it to this point, but the number one seeds I want to focus on first because when we look at the tournament overall, those are the first four teams that we will zero in on. And the first one, of course, that's going to come up is going to be Baylor. Baylor, the defending champs, I had them going to the Final Four to play Gonzaga. And what you saw there... A couple of days ago against the North Carolina Tar Heels, a game that the Tar Heels looked like a team that not only had they run the Bears out of the gym, but pretty much were going to send them back to Texas with their heads hung low. And the Furious come back late, the game going into overtime, and then Baylor just running out of gas to the tune of the first one seed exiting the tournament made you think, what else could we witness here over the course of the weekend. And when we look at the other one seeds, whether your name is Arizona, who had to go into overtime and sweat that one out against TCU, you had Gonzaga, 
another team that did not really play well in the first 28 to 30 minutes against Georgia State, the 16th seed in their bracket, and they had to come out of that game, even though comfortably, but they had to turn it on late in order for them to turn on the Jets and get past the 16th seed and avoid an embarrassment there in their first tournament game this year. Then they had to follow that with a game that they pretty much blood, sweat, and tears down to the wire where they were down by 10 at the half against Memphis and they had to crawl all the way back. Drew Timmy leading the charge there as Gonzaga lives to see another day. And then Kansas, they've done pretty well here. They're not a team that we when we look at the top four seeds in each of the regions, they pretty much coasted through these first two games. But we know Kansas, even though with a championship 14 years ago, they're always a team that, yes, they could be a threat, but then they'll go by the wayside and you say to yourself, am I surprised that another Kansas team with a one seed, a big year, and then before you know it, they will fall out of the tournament. Right now, Kansas is looking good, so no complaints there. But with Baylor already gone, Gonzaga pretty much teetering on the brink of extinction here, and then Arizona and what happened last night against TCU certainly has you wondering whether or not any of these teams are going to make it to New Orleans for a Final Four. As I said, Kansas looks like they're in cruise control, but you know that they're going to face some pressure here as we will talk about the Sweet 16 matchups, especially the Thursday and Friday games. But when you have a story with all the one seeds pretty much looking at their fate and looking at their destiny, staring them right between the eyes, when three of the four teams, including one now long gone and the other two, boy, having it take a big, giant exhale, it makes you wonder what's going to happen here over the course of the rest of the tournament, starting on Thursday night when we take a respite for the next few days and start it back up in just a matter of days. And now we could even look at the Cinderella's, if you will, and even though one of the teams that you're going to look at here may not be a Cinderella, in the Michigan Wolverines because, and talk about a tale of two teams or pretty much a tale of two, I guess for lack of a better word, stretches of momentum. When you look at the Virginia Tech team as they won the ACC tournament and did so by beating Duke in the process, and a lot of people thought with their momentum going into the tournament, they could be a dangerous team. Yes, they are an 11 seed, but at the same time, when you have a team that that's hot and you beat a Duke team, as we all know, the final year of Coach K, people probably hung their hat on Vatek to think that maybe they have a run in them. All right, they may not get to a Final Four, but you would think they would at least get past these first two games, maybe make it to a Sweet 16. Uh Uh-uh, that was not in the cards. They bow out in their very first game. And then to flip that with Michigan, considering what happened there in the regular season, the game against Wisconsin, Jawan Howard getting suspended, the rest of the regular season, they get shellacked by Indiana, who got shellacked in their own right, even after beating Rutgers in the playing game. But for now Michigan to be where they're at, and we know what happened last year. Michigan was a team that a lot of people thought could have made it to a Final Four, even a national championship. And I would think a lot of people aren't going to jump on their bandwagon to think that they have this deep run in them. But this is the one thing about the tournament. A team that was down and out with their coach on the sidelines for the rest of the regular season. They pretty much spit the bit there in the Big Ten tournament. And now, here they are in a Sweet 16 looking to make some damage. As that team, are they really an underdog? I guess based on their ranking and being a double-digit seed. 
But we all know that they're going to be a live dog here when the tournament resumes later on in the week. So when we look at these double-digit seeds, and the first one that we have to discuss is St. Peter's. Because for what they've done here so far, disposing Kentucky the way they did and showed how much of a fraud that Kentucky is, I get it. They're not a stacked, vintage Kentucky team. But considering what they did there to open up the tournament on Thursday against the Wildcats, major raise your eyebrow to think that, wow, is this a team in St. Peter's that we could take seriously and maybe they could push their way to a Sweet 16? Sure enough, they did that by beating Murray State there on Saturday. And St. Peter's led by one-time Seton Hall player going back to the 90s, Shaheen Holloway. I'm sure this is a guy that wasn't on a lot of people's radar. Obviously, the team itself, as a 15 seed, didn't think that they were even going to be close or even be competitive against Kentucky. And here they are, standing as one of the final 16 teams in the tournament. But you know, Holloway's going to get a lot of consideration for another job down the road, whether it be after this year or sometime, maybe even next year. But you think he may strike while the iron is hot. And let's see how far St. Peter's goes as they're seed, or to say double-digit seed number two here that has progressed, as well as the Miami Hurricanes, give it up to them, and what they've done here over the weekend, and even Iowa State as the four double-digit teams standing as, think about this, a quarter of your teams that are left standing all have double-digit seeds. And is it good for the sport? Is it good for the tournament? I understand when you get these teams this deep and... Granted that they're probably going to be underdogs. Maybe Michigan, who knows? If they are, they'll probably be a slight underdog. But generally, it's territory that is pretty much the deep end of the pool when it comes to some of these teams. And their flaws may show when the ball is tipped in the air come game time. But as for right now, and with the way that this tournament has gone, can you see any one of these teams advancing to an Elite Eight or even a Final Four? with the way the college basketball season and especially the tournament has gone, I'd say why not? It's not like these teams are going up against behemoths in the sport. It's not as if they're going up against, as I mentioned, that vintage Kentucky team or even the vintage Duke team. Powerhouses like that where you would think that once the ball is tipped up in the air and five minutes in, it's like 16-4 to and you could pretty much wait until the next game or turn your sets off to either go to sleep or get into something else. But I would not be surprised if any one of these four teams get into a Final Four because of how the lay of the land is. And it's not to discount those top teams that are still left, whether it's Kansas, even Duke for that matter, as they skated by Michigan State and Tom Izzo there late yesterday afternoon into the evening. But when we look at this tournament now, overall, Up until this point, I'm sure a lot of people are going to look at it and say this has been more than what they've ever expected. And if I had to grade it to this point, probably at worst, it would be a B. And it's probably would be as high as an A minus. So with that said, it's probably a B plus. Because I'm sure you can look at some of the disappointments that have taken place. I get it that the Baylor-North Carolina game was just an enormous game. And Baylor was a team that I thought would maybe push it to a Final Four. And as we see, that's not the case. We understand that one of their big players was injured and out for the rest of the year. I believe sometime in late January. But Carolina, as we know, just their reputation and 
the way they played down the stretch, I know that game against Duke, although they didn't fare well in the ACC tournament, but they still are North Carolina. You have to respect the Carolina Blue and the pedigree, obviously the history of that school and what they've done as far as college basketball goes. But now here we are, and even with this tournament, as thrilling as it's been, a lot of these games coming down to the wire, a lot of these games going into overtime, you almost wonder whether or not there's going to be an encore here later on this week into the weekend because so far it has been fascinating. It has been thrilling, nail-biting. Yeah, of course you had some blowout games. Yeah, you had some games, especially day one, even though Kentucky was the story, them getting upset. But ah, you didn't really see a lot of activity. Yeah, some close games. Yeah, close calls. But nothing to the extent where, geez, your bracket was just blown to smithereens there, unless you did pick Kentucky, of course, until you got later in the tournament or even deeper into the weekend and what we saw here over the last two days. And as we take a look ahead, this Thursday the tournament will restart where you'll have Arkansas go up against Gonzaga in the first game, followed by Michigan and Villanova at 729. The first game with Gonzaga will be 709. And then the nightcaps will be Texas Tech playing Duke, Houston, Arizona, Of course, Duke is going to be the story from here on out to see how far Coach K goes in his final go-around here with the tournament. Texas Tech, you know they're going to be a tough team. They played very well here over the weekend. And same for Arizona, although they had to pretty much sweat it out to the final seconds and into overtime, as we talked about earlier. And Houston, they've also had a pretty good ride here over the first couple of days of their tournament. And... Michigan-Villanova is going to be fascinating because Villanova, a team that I picked to go to a Final Four, and Michigan, for everything that we've talked about here, I think that that's going to be one of those games where, would you be surprised if Michigan comes out on top? Absolutely not. But Jay Wright, as we all know, this is his time of year. He's won two of these tournaments here pretty much in the last six years. That's not to say that they're going to be an automatic by any stretch, but when you look at the Games on Thursday, that's the one matchup that you're going to check out. You're going to put the spotlight on just based on both schools, the coaches, their history. Not to say that Texas Tech, Duke, or Arizona, Houston, Gonzaga, Arkansas are going to be pushed aside. But when it comes to powerhouse teams, when it comes to teams that have that star power, maybe not necessarily across the board, it's not the Fab Five, and it's definitely not the lineup that we've seen with the championship teams going back to 2016 and 2018. But here we are now with the Sweet 16 on deck. And when we take a look at Friday's games, the first one will be the Cinderella St. Peter's going up against Purdue, who's played very well here in this tournament to date. Providence, who a lot of people thought, even though they won the Big East regular season, did not play well in the Big East. And here they are going up against Kansas. That is your 709-729, first couple of games there on Friday. And then you have the Blue Bloods, as we like to call them, UNC versus UCLA there at 939. And then you have a matchup of both double-digit seeds with Iowa State going up against Miami. So you know one of those two teams will advance to an Elite Eight. And again, to predict what's going to happen here, it's easy to say which teams have their strengths and weaknesses which teams have the momentum. Obviously, you can look at all 16 teams having the momentum as they take this few-day break before they gear up for another Thursday, Friday, and obviously into the weekend to the Elite Eight. 
But this is why we love the sport. This is why we love these three weeks, especially this past weekend where I'm sure you're probably basketballed out, especially from the college ranks. But when we take a look ahead here, my final four, as I said last week, Baylor's gone, so I can't even pay attention to what's going to happen there in that region, or at least for them, knowing that they will not be representative and go up against Gonzaga, which I was hoping for, a little rematch of last year. But with Gonzaga, my other team still alive, Villanova, and then Wisconsin losing, and even though Johnny Davis I thought was going to be the guy to carry them there, that wasn't to be the case, as they were upended by Iowa State. The teams that I could see at this very moment that will probably make it to a Final Four, and when we look at the Midwest, with Kansas being the one seed, and I'm not going to say that they have a cakewalk, because as we all know, these games, the pressure, players could be tight, especially if they're trailing, and we're going to really see what these teams are made of. We've seen what Gonzaga was made of, obviously, when they beat Memphis the other day, and even with the scenario of how North Carolina, even with the big lead against Baylor, how they were able to hang on and win in overtime, that says something about teams that were able to withstand that pressure. There's always going to be that one game where that team is going to face a nail-biter. We've already seen it with Gonzaga. We've already seen it with a bunch of other teams. Arizona, obviously, is another one. Kansas hasn't had that game yet, so I'd be a little fearful of them moving forward, despite the fact that they had two pretty much cakewalk-type games. And now, as we take shape of this tournament, we'd have to see whether or not Kansas is going to be able to be one of those teams that are going to withstand that pressure, that are going to be able to pull the team out of the fire, whether they were trailing or the game has been tight throughout the course of the second half, or even the whole game for that matter. And we all know basketball is a game of runs. We all know that there's going to be a team that they could be down 15 with 10 minutes to go, and you know that they're going to have that 16-2 to run to get themselves back in the game or even take the lead. But when I look at these brackets, of course I'm going to stick with Villanova and obviously Gonzaga, but with the East, North Carolina looks like they're going to be dangerous here. St. Peter's, will the magic continue as they move on here in this tournament? UCLA is a team that's going to look to get back to a Final Four. And obviously, they're going to play North Carolina in this first game. Off the top of my head, and of course, there's also Purdue. There's something about Carolina right now that I like. And they had one of their key players foul out in the game, and they were still able to win the game. So, Hubert Davis, I get it. He's a green coach, a guy that hasn't really coached in these big spots ever in the tournament. Who knows? Could he be a Kevin Ollie type to take his team to a Final Four and even win a national title as he did back in 2014 with Shabazz Napier after Jim Calhoun went, won the tournament in 2011 with Kemba Walker. To me, there's a little similarity there with how UConn won their title post-Jim Calhoun, how Carolina now post-Roy Williams. So there's a storyline there that you could pretty much wrap your arms around that I like. But as we take a look here, I'm going to... Say Carolina makes it, although I can see UCLA coming out of that region. And then Kansas, do I trust them? I can see them beating Providence. And I know it's Iowa State and Miami. But let's face it. This is an opportunity for Kansas to get to the Final Four here based on the competition. You have Wisconsin out. Auburn 
which was a major disappointment there in losing yesterday. And you have to wonder whether or not that Kansas, they probably looked at that and said, all right, maybe those two and three seeds are gone. So there's a little bit of a path for us to, not to say it's going to be easy, but we don't have to run through the gauntlet and have to go to the wall against a school that whether has had some success over the last couple of years in the tournament or that has the pedigree a la UCLA, North Carolina. So I can see Kansas coming out of the Midwest where you'll have Kansas, Villanova, I think. Can Arizona come out of that region? Absolutely. I could see them winning. Michigan, let's see what they do here against Villanova, which will be fascinating. You have a lot of great storylines heading into this coming weekend. Can't wait to talk about it next week when we'll have a Final Four. And I'm sure for those who still have their brackets intact or that's pretty much shredded and thrown out in the garbage, what we can say about this tournament today is that it's been thrilling. It's been fascinating. It's pretty much been edge of your seat. And as I said before, and I'll say again, more than what you could ever expect. And why not? This was going to be unpredictable. As I said at the top, this was going to be one that a lot of people, no matter how good, how strong of a team and their seasons that have been, that there were going to be no lock or guarantee to even get to a Sweet 16, let alone a Final Four of a championship. And I think we've seen that to date so far. Even though you still have three one seeds still intact, but considering the road that Arizona went through yesterday and even Gonzaga, we all know that there is absolutely no guarantee or no automatic for these teams to be one of the last four teams standing when we talk about it a week from today. Now, what's interesting here is I pivot. The rest of this podcast could be dedicated to player movement. Because when we look at these next three sports and how they've impacted just over the past week alone, and with today the NHL deadline at 3 p.m., and I'm sure there's going to be some wheeling and dealing, who knows, maybe even with my New York Islanders as they're not going to make it to the playoffs this year, and I'm sure they may pawn off some pieces, maybe get some draft picks back or some type of capital. That remains to be seen. But I'm going to start with the NFL because as much as I don't want to talk football, we all know that the shield reigns supreme, as I say time after time after time. But when we look at the past week, and I'm not going to get into every signing, people. I'm not going to break down Marcus Williams being signed by the Ravens or a guy like J.C. Jackson signed by the L.A. Chargers from New England. I'm going to talk about the top three or four trade signings, whatever you want to call it, that are going to make significant impact. And yes, as a Steeler fan, might as well get it out of the way. I know Mitchell Trubisky, ha, 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 I get it. All the jokes are going to be on the Steelers considering what has taken place here, especially in the AFC North. And I'm going to get to that as a perfect segue because the first line of discussion when we talk about player movement is Deshaun Watson. And we know what happened there in the offseason, pretty much going back to last year, him being acquitted on those criminal charges with the nine masseuses or massage therapists with the alleged sexual misconduct and everything that was sorted about those details. And we know civil suits are coming. But the fascinating thing about this was last week where the Cleveland Browns had come out to say that they were out of the running and trying to pursue Deshaun Watson. And I believe this was about Wednesday. To where Thursday, 
Watson came out and said, the only team I want to go to is the Cleveland Browns. So I'm sure that got the antenna up high and wide throughout Northeast Ohio for Jimmy Haslam and company to the tune to where the next day they sent a package to the Texans, which involves three first round picks, a third round pick and a fourth round pick. Although they send the fifth round pick back five picks in total, three first round picks for this year, next year, and the year after that, a third round pick for a guy who has not played a snap in a year and a half. And by the time September rolls around when the season begins, it's going to be about 20 months. Everything that happened in between with these allegations and his reputation, etc. To the tune where they bring him into Cleveland, Baker Mayfield, we'll talk about him in a second. But for the gamble that they're taking, this is a franchise that ever since they came back into the league in 1999... They've made it to the playoffs twice and have only won one playoff game. A team that, other than the 64 Browns, have not come anywhere near a championship and let alone a Super Bowl as their franchise has never even played in one and we've already seen 56 of these games. And they're ready to push all their chips to the middle of the table to have to bear the brunt of everything that's transpired around this guy. All that is taken to get this guy here to Cleveland with the draft picks that they sent, etc. And then on top of all that, they re-sign him. Because remember, he had a contract where before the 2020 season, I think it was an extension four years, $140 million. So now with all that being said, the Browns then sign him to a $230 million contract, I believe for five years, and every red cent guaranteed. The biggest guaranteed, and the only guaranteed contract, but as far as guaranteed money, the biggest in the history of the sport. Pales in comparison to Aaron Rodgers, who signed this deal where he's getting $150 million guaranteed. Well, huh. The Sean Watson, I don't know who his agent is. Maybe it's Scott Boris for all I know, because for him to get that contract... I don't know if this was the agent just strong-arming the Brown front office to say, hey, this guy's young, he's talented, he's got a year off, he's going to have fresh legs, he's going to be raring to go, give him the money, or the Browns were just drunk with power to think that, hey, we're going to show the NFL and the rest of the 29 teams what we're all about, how serious we are, etc., and boom, $230 million is going to be deposited in Deshaun Watson's account over the course of the next five years where it doesn't matter if he tears his knee or has a million injuries over the course of the next five years, he will not miss a paycheck by any stretch here over the next half decade. So what that means is that Cleveland is entrusting in this guy to be pretty much near, if not perfect, for the next five years. He's going to have to play MVP caliber football at the position in a conference, and forget about the conference, we can put that aside, in a division that has Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson, a former MVP. The conference, as we all know, loaded with Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Josh Allen. I only throw in Derek Carr because now he has Devontae Adams, and I'll get to him in a minute. But you talk about the ultimate gamble for not only organization, but even the player. And we understand Watson has come out to say, oh, I'm going to rebuild myself. I'm going to show and prove that this was not me. I'm not that guy. 
I'm a high character guy, of course, paraphrasing. And we're going to see that. And he's going to play in a city that is starving for a championship. Granted, they got their championship when LeBron was there in 2016, but we all know that that is a football town. Going back to Jim Brown, Otto Graham, Paul Brown, etc. So now, the Browns did put their money where their mouths were. Now let's see what Watson does. And granted, training camp isn't until July. So with this story already pretty much in our rearview mirror, and even though you have OTAs and mini camps and all that, but a lot of the pressure isn't going to start to mount until we get to training camp. And it is going to be very intriguing to see how this plays out, not only just year one, but throughout this whole contract, because for the Browns to do that and fork over $230 million for a guy that, yes, has a lot of talent, yes, has one in college, although that hasn't translated to the pros, and... Yes, he is a guy that can win a Super Bowl if you put the right pieces around them. But man, this is dangerous on all fronts. Because it has to be Super Bowl win or bust over the course of the next five years for this guy. Anything short of that, and anything short of MVP status, will be a complete waste. He has to play at that level in a conference that has quarterbacks loaded in... Many cities, if you're Cincinnati, Kansas City, Buffalo, Los Angeles, the Chargers, Baltimore, Denver, I forgot Russell Wilson. So we shall see how that breaks down. As for Baker Mayfield, I don't know why he sent that tweet thanking Cleveland. Maybe he did see the writing on the wall, even though he posted that, I believe it was Tuesday, and then Wednesday, the Browns came out and said, oh no, we're... Not interested in Deshaun Watson, which was the biggest bluff in live all time. But for him to come out and say that, I guess he looks prophetic now. But it was pathetic then because it was almost as if he was trying to garner attention his way. To say, hey, I did everything for the franchise. Hey, I love you guys. I know I'm getting kicked out of the door. Uh, I wish it could have turned out better. Uh, Please, I don't want to see or hear about Baker Mayfield. You would think his next stop could be either New Orleans. Maybe Carolina. Is they're going to look for a quarterback? Those will be the first two destinations that you would think Baker Mayfield will go, and you know he's going to resign a long deal there. Who knows what he's going to get, and obviously whatever he gets is going to be exorbitant. But that woe is me mentality and that, oh, it's going to be tough, whatever it was, I, I didn't pay attention to that. I mean, I did from the standpoint of how pathetic it looked, but he turned out to be right. But nobody wants to hear from Baker Mayfield anymore. No more progressive and Hulu commercials, please. Madison Avenue, we don't want to see it. Sayonara, goodbye, we don't have to worry about that. As far as the other big transactions, Devontae Adams, I know from what I read, Aaron Rodgers was apprised of how Adams was going to be part of a deal, and we all know he was going to be franchised, and Adams, he wanted his big payday, and even though he said, going back to the beginning of last year, when Aaron Rodgers had the emotional tug-of-war with the Packer front office, and how he felt that If Rodgers goes, I'm going to be gone. He wanted to play with number 12. And then here it was. The big money came Aaron Rodgers' way. I'm sure behind the scenes, Devontae Adams and his camp said, "Uh uh-uh, we want out of here. If you're going to give him that much money, we could get money elsewhere. And sure enough, he gets traded to the Las Vegas Raiders as they get the Raiders' first-round pick and second-round pick of this year's draft. 
And it actually puts them in good position because the Packers now have four picks in the top 60. So I'm sure they're going to be able to get a wide receiver there. I'm sure they'll probably get another offensive lineman. I'm sure they're going to get some reinforcements. Will they be able to make an impact right away? Remains to be seen. But I'm sure that was part of the thinking with the hierarchy by the Packers and telling Aaron Rodgers that we're going to have to trade this guy because we're not going to be able to pay him even though he's going to want a long-term deal. And he did get that with the Raiders. But we'll bring in reinforcements. We'll bring in guys that could hopefully put their best foot forward and maybe make a contribution this year. As we all know, the Packers are not a now team. They're pretty much a right this second team. Because the quarterback is not getting any younger. Yes, he's coming off back-to-back MVPs, etc. But we know the urgency for this organization to win a Super Bowl is right now. And listen, you can't slice it any other way than that. And then the Raiders have really restacked themselves to the point where not only do they bring in a guy like Devontae Adams, but now they bring in the pass rusher that they let go in Khalil Mack, but they bring in Chandler Jones from Arizona, a guy who is still very much a force, even at the age of 31, I believe, or he may be turning 32. But the Raiders know that with all that's taking place in Denver, we know Kansas City's going to be there. The Chargers are on the come up, and then now the Raiders know that they had to take another step forward because they had to keep up with the Joneses in the AFC West, making that division by far the hardest throughout the sport. Von Miller signing for the deal that he did, I believe it was six years, $120 million, where he's getting $51 million guaranteed. Man, God bless him. He goes to Buffalo to see if he could be that one piece, especially on defense, and not only that, We know teams that are looking to take it to the next step. To have a guy like that is invaluable. And we saw what Von Miller did in Denver when they won a Super Bowl over Carolina back in the 2015 season and obviously this past year. And I'm sure the impact that he had on that team with Aaron Donald and even Jalen Ramsey to an extent. But knowing that Miller and Donald pretty much were hand-in-hand playing outside linebacker, knowing he could be that guy that could take away some of those double and triple teams. And be that guy that will get in his ear to say, this is how you win. Well, now he brings that to Buffalo. And let's see what happens with the Von Miller experiment as he now takes his talents to upstate New York. And for the Bills, who came close two years ago and obviously ever so close to getting back to an AFC Championship game. Now to see if they could get above that hump and bring in a guy like that is certainly a positive. You also had Juju Smith-Schuster go to Kansas City, which was no shock. A lot of rumors were him going to Kansas City last year, and that didn't happen. We know we re-signed with Pittsburgh, and now he goes there for one year, so good for him. I'm not going to get into all these other deals like I mentioned. I want to move on to other things. But the NFL offseason obviously got off to a tremendous start even the week before, as we talked about last week with Russell Wilson and a lot of the trades and rumors that were bandied about. And then Watson was just the pinnacle of all that, especially with everything that happened in the offseason with him. And listen, we still have the draft to get to. We still have all the other stuff that leads up into training camp. So thankfully, and rightfully so, I mean, I'm NFL'd out. I get it that the Super Bowl was five weeks ago and pretty much everything was said and done well over a month ago. But now for the NFL to get themselves back to the top of the sports charts again, which doesn't matter. The Shield is bulletproof. No matter how you cut it, it is always going to be top news. It doesn't matter. 
somebody could, could get hangnail and it could be the busiest sports day in the world and that may be front page news when we talk about what's going on in sports. So that's just how the NFL is. As I segue from that to baseball, and boy, you knew it was going to be crazy considering that the deal was pretty much tentative between the players and owners about a week and a half ago. And with all the players showing up in spring training, whether in Florida, Arizona, and a lot of players still needed to sign themselves on a dotted line, last week, around this time after I recorded where the A's were pretty much selling pieces left and right, we know about Chris Bassett being traded to the Mets, their starting pitchers, or one of their top starting pitchers, how he was gone, Matt Chapman was also traded, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. And then on top of that was Matt Olson, the first baseman, traded to Atlanta. And then he signed a deal for eight years, $168 million, which right away you already knew, bye-bye Freddie Freeman. And it was a very shrewd move on the part of the Atlanta Braves, as tough as it was to not have to engage in any conversations, in which we found out later on that was not the case, or that was the case, excuse me, where Freeman said that, He didn't really get a phone call. There wasn't a follow-up from Alex Anthopoulos, the GM of the Braves. Pretty much, they knew which direction they were going. They wanted to get younger. They wanted to get a guy that if they were going to give a long-term contract to, it was going to be a guy that was much younger. And they did so not only trading for Matt Olson, but giving him the money and having him sign on the dotted line, which meant Freddie Freeman was going to go elsewhere. And you knew it was going to be either the Yankees or the Dodgers. And of course... He went back to his hometown team, six years, $162 million, which made you think, was it the years? Was it more of an annual per year that he wanted from the Braves, even though the Braves didn't follow up on any offers or there was not any contact between the two? It pretty much looked like they were dead set on moving away from the Freddie Freeman era in Atlanta and bringing in a a guy that was going to be younger a guy that could be a little bit more productive and has shown a lot of power, although he batted 210 last year, but did have 39 homers, and a guy that could pretty much slot in, although there's going to be a lot of pressure on Olsen, no matter, it doesn't matter how you want to depict it or portray it, him being a hometown kid from Atlanta or right outside of Atlanta and him getting the big money, him having to fill those shoes are going to be enormous, and you could see him pressing early on. Granted, Atlanta is not New York, Philly, Boston, where if he's batting 190 and it's the middle of May, he's going to get booed out of the stadium. But you have to give it up. The Braves made a smart move there. They knew that they rather would have gone that route, which would have been more sustainable in the long run, as opposed to giving Freeman that type of contract, which I'm sure if they gave him six years till he's 38 and with the DH in the National League, why not? But I can't knock him or kill him for making that trade And knowing that he is five years younger than Freeman and the annual salary is smaller than what Freeman's going to get in LA. So kudos to Anthopolis and the Braves for making that type of move. And the Dodgers, the rich get richer. Uh, How else can you say it? I talked about Matt Chapman. He gets traded to Toronto for four minor league prospects. Chapman, a guy that they could pretty much plug in who replace... Marcus Simeon, who went to Texas, and Simeon was a middle infielder, but you figure they're going to probably maybe even put him at third or maybe put him in the middle part of the infield. That remains to be seen, but 
That was pretty much a makeup from losing Simeon to Texas there earlier in the offseason. And then some of these other deals, whether it's the Phillies and what they've done here quietly, signing Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos, their lineup is going to be lethal, to say the least, when you have Harper as well as Hoskins to go along with Castellanos and Schwarber. Man, that is going to be a lineup, a ton of strikeouts, but in that ballpark, they're going to hit 230 home runs in their sleep if they're all healthy. Trevor Story signs with the Red Sox. He got the same deal that Javi Baez got in Detroit, six years at $140 million, and he's going to play second base, not shortstop. His original position, as we all know, Xander Bogarts is a shortstop of the Red Sox. So when we look at how the Red Sox are going to be composed, now they lost Schwarber here, which a lot of people thought, Maybe they should resign, be that DH, be a guy that could be that thumper in the middle of the lineup. But Story, let's see. He's going from Colorado to Boston, which is going to be night and day when it comes to fan bases. And remember, they also signed Chris Bryant, the Rockies, seven years, $182 million. I don't know if that was the only deal Bryant was able to get, but he is pretty much going to be the lone wolf out there as far as that lineup goes because why he chose Colorado is beyond me. I'm sure he was trying to get maybe to somewhere in the West Coast. He's a Nevada guy. I get it that it's not too far, Colorado to Nevada, where he's from, but he's going to be mired in a lot of long losing streaks and pretty much going to be the only guy that's going to carry that team. So God bless there, uh, Chris Bryant, in your days out in Colorado, especially those first six weeks where you're going to have snow games and 20 degrees and wind chills and all that. But the biggest surprise that came out over this past week was Carlos Correa, if you ask me. And Minnesota, for whatever reason, they've done a lot of wheeling and dealing here. They made a ton of moves, quite surprisingly when you think about it, because the Twins had an awful year last year coming coming off of back-to-back years where they made it to the playoffs. They won 100 games in 2019 where they hit 306 home runs, was an all-time Major League Baseball record for a single season. And here they were over the course of just the last few weeks where they not only traded for Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela, but now to bring in Correa, which was a team that I never would have thought in a million years would have signed. But Correa goes to Minnesota three years, $105 million. I believe he has an opt-out in this deal. Similar to Chris Bryant as to were there not any other teams that were interested? Were the offers too low? Were they just offering a one-year deal for him to kind of build up his stats and build up a resume so he could get the big payday next year? I get it. That hasn't been the theme of this offseason for a lot of these players, whether you're the Trevor Stories of the world, the Freddie Freemans, etc. We knew that there wasn't going to be a scenario where somebody was going to sign one of these top players for one year to see if they could earn themselves that big payday come next offseason, but boy, for the Twins to go out and do that, and I get it, the division other than the White Sox, and maybe with the extra playoff team, they may feel as if they could be a threat, now we all know their pitching isn't the best, and Kenta Maeda is going to be on the shelf this year as he is going to undergo Tommy John surgery, so there's a hit for their pitching staff as they await the regular season in a couple weeks, but I don't know. I guess the Twins are trying to show their fans that, hey, we mean business, that 
maybe as the season goes on, win some games, and as they get toward the trade deadline come July, that maybe they'll bring in a couple of other players to know that if they're just a few games out from the fifth or sixth spot in the wild card, that they'll make a push for it. Good for the Twins. It's great to see. It's one thing to look at where these players are going and say, all right, Yankees, Red Sox, Mets, Dodgers, Phillies. But it's another to see guys like Brian go to Colorado and Minnesota, which, all right, people could argue, well, there's going to be some competitive balance with these guys going there, but what else does Colorado have? And even to a certain extent, the Twins. Granted, they had a down year last year, but do a lot of people think the Twins are going to take that next step or get back to where they were a few years ago when they were hitting home runs throughout stadiums all over the country? Uh, Right now, I can't say that. But I got to give it up for at least making an effort. You know, unlike the Pirates of the world, unlike the Kansas City Royals, and I understand they got a farm system and Bobby Witt's going to be probably coming up at some point, if not this year next. I get it, but... At least the Twins are showing you something. That they're making an effort here and not just sitting on their pockets or having alligator arms knowing that, oh, well, you know, we'll just expect 14,000 at the ballpark this year and we'll roll out whomever we're going to roll out and that's it. So I got to give them credit for at least making an effort here, but how far they'll go, that remains to be seen. A couple other quick deals. Anthony Rizzo signs two years for $32 million. In the Bronx with the Yankees, which also begs the question, where's DJ LeMahieu going to play? Here's a guy that, I get it, he's a second baseman, played third at Colorado, also played some first base here with the Yankees, but now that you have Rizzo signed, he's playing first base, you traded for Josh Donaldson, he's playing third, you have to move Glaber Torres to second because he can't play shortstop, and who knows if one of these young kids are going to play shortstop because, is DJ LeMahieu going to be a starter there? I guess as of right now, he has to be, but... It's almost as if they've, I'm not going to say pushed out LeMahieu, but he doesn't really have a position to play right now. So I don't understand what the Yankees' thinking was, even bringing in Donaldson. I get it. They probably needed to get rid of Sanchez. They wanted to bring back somebody in particular, and now they got to pay $52 million over the next two years, which last week I killed the trade. It made no sense. But now LeMahieu is a guy that doesn't really have a position, unless he's going to play short. Because I can't see Gleyber Torres playing shortstop this year based on the abomination that he was last year there. So we shall see. And they also traded Luke Voigt to San Diego for a pitcher, a minor league pitcher, which you knew Voigt was going to be a guy that was going to be jettisoned here. And he was. And another right-handed bat that the Yankees didn't need, a power bat at that. And Kenley Jansen goes from L.A. to Atlanta, signs one year for $16 million, another shrewd deal by the Braves as they always seem to make these types of moves, and they're going to be a tough out here based on what they've done. So far, they re-signed Eddie Rosario, and I also get that Jorge Soler, who was the World Series MVP, he signed a three-year deal with the Miami Marlins. I guess he has some roots there, obviously being from Cuba, and the Marlins trying to do something there on the offensive side, because we all know they have great starting pitching and young pitching at that, whether your name is Trevor Rogers, Sandy Alcantara, Sixto Sanchez was coming back from a serious injury, but they have pitching and now they just need to get some offense going and bringing in a guy like Soler, plug him in right field. Hopefully he'll give you 40 some odd home runs and be a star that the community can rally around. Good move there by the Marlins, but are they expected to do big things this year? Absolutely not.
And then, also, we talked about this last week with Kyrie, but this, now the latest with the unvaccinated Met and Yankee players, which has been the recent news, and I know based on Aaron Judge's comments last week, saying that, oh, something he's not going to worry about, and he pretty much tiptoed around the question about him being vaccinated coming into the season. But for the mandate, as it is currently right now, indefinite as to when it's going to be removed. And based on what I've seen, and I said this last week, you go into all the restaurants, all the indoor facilities, nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody is even remotely thinking about COVID. And I understand maybe it's COVID fatigue. Maybe it's a situation where people are just done with it. And I get it that you have to be responsible to a certain extent, depending on where you're at. But we all know that here in New York, and I just went to the UBS arena, which I'll talk about during the NHL segment. And yes, there were a smattering of people with masks on, but nobody was wearing a mask. Nobody's showing any proof of vaccination. So why can't these players, as well as the frontline workers, healthcare workers, cops, firemen, etc., why can this all be... I mean, listen, I, again, I'm not trying to say that COVID is over. I'm not trying to say that, ah, later for masks. I'm not trying to say let's be irresponsible. Of course not. Now that we have this new variant that's coming out, this stealth variant, which is highly contagious, but not as deeply... Not to be deeply concerned about the effect that it may have as far as it being a variant that's potent, that could put you in a hospital, or even worse, on life support. But... Let's get with the program here. If everybody's indoors right now, whether bar, restaurant, club, venue, Madison Square Garden, Barclays, uh, give it a break. And then to think these players are going to be outdoors and social distance. I get it in the dugout, all right, fine, locker room, but come on. Can we just say goodbye to this? Because if you walk around the city, and yes, you're going to see people with masks on, but if you go into some of these establishments... And yeah, come on, Jay Reels, how are they going to eat and drink if they have their mask on? I understand that, but people are walking in without masks, people hanging out, looking around, talking. They, what, it's everywhere. And it's all right, it's fine with me, but why this is still intact, why we're still dealing with this uncertainty or this being indefinite is beyond me. And before I segue to the NHL, I don't know what's going on with Fernando Tatis Jr., but one thing for sure is that with him being now three months where he's not going to be a part of the Padres here because of this wrist that he has to get surgery on, if you're a Padre fan or if you root for this team and knowing that your biggest star is going to be out with this injury, and not only that, but also for the whole sport because we all know Tatis Jr. is one of the top three or four players that when he comes to bat at any given game, you know that you want to stay tuned to see what he's going to do. And for him to be out here for pretty much till, let's face it, June, mid-June, maybe even July, that's a blow to the sport, a blow to the organization. And not only that, you have to wonder whether or not this guy's made out of glass because it seems like at every turn, whether it's his shoulder, now his wrist, the rumors about him driving motorcycles down in the Dominican Republic and getting hurt, this is a guy that you're really going to have to watch out for. And we know he's of a slight build, obviously physically fit, but you got to wonder whether or not this guy is going to withstand another 10, 12, 13 years signed at $320 million to whether he could stay healthy over the course of a regular season, let alone this contract, because 
I tell you, if you're a Padre fan, you really have to be concerned whether or not this guy is going to be, yes, the face of the franchise. By far he is, but for him to be part of this organization for the long haul, you got to wonder whether or not he's going to be a guy that's only going to play 120 games, 100 games, dare I even say 80 games. That also is one that we're going to have to keep an eye on as the baseball season begins just two weeks from this coming Thursday, and I am waiting with bated breath for baseball to begin ASAP. And now as we finish up, when it comes to all the player movement that's uh, taking place, whether it's the NFL, Major League Baseball, and now the National Hockey League, because today at 3 p.m. is the deadline, and you have to wonder which teams are going to make a last-ditch effort to try to fortify and bring in the key pieces to a Stanley Cup playoff, a deep run, or even a championship. And we've seen that over the weekend, whether you're the Tampa Bay Lightning bringing in Nick Paul and Brandon Hagel, two guys that you would think would contribute right out of the bat. Also, the Maple Leafs, and we know their checkered playoff history. They bring in Seattle captain Mark Giordano, which I'm sure will be a big lift, knowing that it will go along with the guys like Austin Matthews, Obviously, John Tavares, Mitch Marner, guys like that. So Toronto gets a big reinforcement there. Even the Bruins made a trade, and not only did they bring in a guy from Anaheim and a defenseman, Hampus Lindholm, but they also signed him to a long-term deal, eight years, $52 million. So right when the trade, pretty much when he landed and got into the facility, they handed the pen over and said, would you like to sign this contract for eight years, $52 million? And Lindholm said, yes. I would love to do so, and the Bruins looking to get themselves back to a Stanley Cup final as they did back in 2019, but maybe the biggest deal of all, at least to date, goes to the Florida Panthers as they traded for Claude Giroux, the longtime flyer captain, a guy who was going to bring a lot of grit, toughness, scoring punch, you name it, and the Panthers, they're going all in knowing that they Had a very successful 56 game last year, although they lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning in the first round in a hard-fought series. And with 90 points leading the Atlantic Division, they are going all-in knowing that it's pretty much Stanley Cup or bust for this team. And let's see if Giroux can pay dividends early, but more so even late as they get into April, May, and June. Pretty much May, June, July, because the playoffs aren't going to start until the first week of May. But right now, that has to be the biggest move unless some other team is going to come to the forefront here over the course of the next seven, eight hours. And you have to wonder, for my team in particular, will the Islanders trade Semyon Varlamov, their goalie where he played very well on Saturday against the Dallas Stars in winning 4-2. to two. Varlamov could be a chip for some team that's looking to get a goalie, whether it be a backup or maybe even as a starter, knowing the type of experience that he's had over the last two years with the deep playoff runs that the Islanders have experienced going to a conference final in back-to-back years. Who knows if any other players off that team may be even going or shipped out in a deal where Lou Lamorello is probably already looking to next year considering how this season has been, let's face it, just been an underachieving season from start to finish. Well, at least at this point because it hasn't finished as we know. So let's see what happens here. I can't tell you who's going to be rumored to go where. You know that the teams that are out of it are going to see what they could do to purge some of these players to some contenders. You wonder what maybe the Rangers may have in store. The Rangers, I think, are a team that 
are pretty much going to go with what they have unless there's just something that they absolutely can't refuse. You wonder what Carolina, they're another team that is looking to make their claim here in the Eastern Conference as well, coming off a big season last year, and they fell by the wayside, losing to the Lightning, similar to the way the Panthers did last year in the playoffs. So a lot of these teams, maybe even out West, will St. Louis or Minnesota make a push for a player? Will Calgary or LA, maybe even Edmonton? Vegas, they already brought in Eichel. I'd be surprised they bring in somebody else. It's going to be very competitive here over the next, like I said, few hours right up until the deadline to see which players are going to go elsewhere. And I get it that the NHL doesn't come across as sexy like the Major League Baseball trade deadline or even the NBA and of recent vintage, the NFL. But it's going to be fascinating to see which players go where. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of deals that may not... You're not going to have the superstar player going from one team to the next. It's going to be that lunch pail, punch in, punch out, yeoman-like work, grinder-type player that may be that difference on a team that has a bunch of stars, that has a bunch of goal scorers, or even that goaltender, a la Varlamov, that could be a missing piece to get a team to a Stanley Cup final. That's what we're going to look at here as we get closer to the deadline at 3 o'clock. And when we take a look around the league, very competitive, obviously in the East. The Panthers have put themselves a little distance between them, the Lightning, and the Leafs with a six-point advantage. And even though a game in hand with the Lightning, I got to check their schedule to see if they have down the stretch. Now, mind you, there's still another six weeks left of this regular season. So there's plenty of hockey to be played. Think about it. 20 more games are still on the docket for a lot of these teams. So we'll see how that fares as we get deeper into the month and obviously into April. Carolina, the Rangers and Penguins are your top three teams in the Metropolitan where both the Rangers and Penguins are tied at 85 points. Both teams have already played 63 games. Out West, Colorado is pretty much in cruise control, 16 points ahead of the St. Louis Blues. But with the Wild and Predators nipping at their heels, just one point behind them, you know that's going to be competitive to the end. And then out West in the Pacific with Calgary, LA, and with the Flames and how they played here with an eight-point advantage over the Kings. And they have two games in hand with LA, followed by Edmonton and Vegas, who have not played well. And they've pretty much fallen apart here over the last few weeks to the tune where they're Although four points behind the second place Kings, but 12 points behind first place in Calgary. So the NHL, which will heat up here, we'll see where these players go. We'll see if there's any, not going to be blockbusters, but trades that you would really raise an eyebrow to say, wow, a la the Panthers getting a guy like Claude Giroux onto their team from Philadelphia. Let's see if we see a deal like that consummate here over these next few hours. And as I turn my attention to the NBA, obviously no player movement there as the deadline was last month. But when we take a look at the association, stories coming out from last week. I know Kyrie had the big 60-point game, 41 points in the first half, 60 points, franchise record and career high for him. And again, as I said before with the vaccinations and the status of having Kyrie come back here in New York and it being indefinite, If you're a Nets fan, and even more in particular, the powers that be for the Brooklyn Nets, you're just hoping, praying, fingers, eyes, and legs crossed that come April 15th, that the ban will be lifted and that Kyrie can play in the home games. Because the brilliance that we see on the road 
is not going to help if they have to face a game in their building for their season. Let's say if they're down 3-2 and game six is at Barclays and there's no Kyrie, then the net fan and in particular the net brass, they're going to be fuming at their player privately. They're not going to say anything public about it, but that's where you're going to have an issue if this doesn't get lifted here over the next few weeks. You also have Steph Curry, who hurt himself in that collision there with Marcus Smart of the Celtics to where Steve Kerr called it a dangerous play. He wouldn't say it's dirty because he knows Marcus Smart is a hard-nosed player. And based on what I saw, it didn't look like there was any intent on Smart to injure Curry. He just fell awkwardly on him as he was trying to reach for a loose ball. Curry who a lot of people think he'll be back for the playoffs, but you got to wonder if you're Golden State and they're going through this skid at the moment where they have not played well here over the course of the last eh, four to six weeks. But for them to have Curry out as they get Draymond Green back, you wonder whether or not this Warrior team, and we know they'll be ready for the playoffs and they'll be ramped up ready to go, but you got to wonder if there's a little bit of doubt creeping into this organization right now, or under this team. I'm not going to say the organization. But with Curry, as we all know, he's the guy that's going to stir the drink. He's the guy that's going to be front and center for any deep playoff run because we don't know what's going to happen here with Klay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins. Is that a guy you could trust in crunch time? Draymond Green, he's going to do all the dirty work, but at the same time, he's not going to be a guy you're going to rely on offensively, especially at the crux of a game. But Steph Curry, he needs to come back 100%, which he will, you would think, by the time the postseason rolls along. But with Curry and his ankle, and he's had a history of ankle injuries, you have to wonder whether or not that the psyche of this team, even at 47-24 and and currently third place in the West, are they going to be able to turn on the switch? Are they going to be able to get themselves primed after a successful regular season, after, if you ask me, an overachieving regular season, because I didn't expect them to win 48 games. I thought they'd be around 43, 44, but they're going to eclipse 50 games easily. But whether or not this team is going to have a championship run in them, that you'd have to ask yourself whether or not they're going to have it in them, especially if they're going to have Steph Curry at 50, 60, 70, and not even close to 100%. And then lastly, LeBron James, again, the excellence. I mean, what more can we say about the guy as he's now number two overall in scoring as he surpassed Carmelo there on Saturday versus the Washington Wizards. So the next step is Kareem. He is the mountaintop at 38,000. I forgot the exact number, but I believe he's 1,600 points behind him, which he should get next year, you would think. And LeBron on the heels of the 30-10-10 club, 30,000 points, 10,000 rebounds, 10,000 assists. There isn't any more bouquets, accolades you could throw at the guy considering what he's done in his career. But when you look at his team right now, and we've talked about it ad infinitum, and you can't even call them the expendables anymore because this team has just been god-awful. Currently, 11 games under 500. They are right now tied for ninth, and currently 10th, In the Western Conference, they would play the Denver Nuggets as of today if the season ended in the playing game. And the sad part is is that even if they they were to lose that first game, they would have to be on the road 
in both of these games in order for them to get into the playoffs. So even if they win at Denver, they would still have to play another game to get in, but there would be a road team as of right now. And it would have been a road team regardless because they were hovering at nine for God knows how long. But boy, 30 and 41 is their record. To think they have the same exact record as the Knicks. And if I would have told you that at the beginning of the season, you'd be like, wait a minute, the Knicks are going to be close to 50 wins, if not at 50 wins, if they had the same record on March the 21st. And to think that is not the case. I mean, go figure. But as we look around the league, the Heat are still playing well. As I said a couple weeks ago, they're a team that a lot of people aren't paying attention to because everybody's going to think that the Milwaukee's of the world, the Sixers of the world, even the Celtics of the world, and how they've been playing and they've been just, they've been unconscious. They won by 20 against Denver the other night. They've been on this West Coast swing. And here they are, tied with the Sixers, a half game behind the Bucks for the two seed. They're not going to get the one seed, you would think, but I can't believe how the Celtics have played here. They've just been absolutely phenomenal pretty much since the start of the year. What were they, 18 and 21, I believe, sometime in early January? And since then, they have just been unstoppable. The Nets, still at eight, and you figure that they're probably going to be around that. They're not going to have a run in them to where they're going to get to six. They're four games behind the Cavs as of right now. So the East is pretty much going to be what it is. Yeah, you may have some teams flip-flop with your Cleveland, Chicago. Let's see what happens with the Milwaukee, Philly, Boston scenario. And then the Hawks, right now they look like they're going to be comfortable as a 10 seed. The Wizards, four and a half games back, so you can forget about the rest there of the East. And then the Suns, even without Chris Paul, and we thought for a second there that maybe with him being out of the lineup still for a few more weeks and them maybe slipping up a little bit while they're winners of five in a row, They're going to cruise to the one seed in the West. The Grizzlies still playing well at 49-23. and Who would have thought they would have won 50 games this year? And they're going to beat that and then some. And as I take a look at the rest of the West, Utah, who right now they're currently in New York as they played the Knicks last night and buried them. I believe they have Brooklyn tonight. And pretty much the rest of the West is the same. Dallas at five, Minnesota flip-flopping with Denver. Clippers, now they've hit the skids here. I thought maybe they would be able to get that number over 44. I believe at one point they were 34 and 30. And since then, they have not played well. They're actually 4 and 6 in the last 10. And then you have the Pelicans and Lakers. Who knows? They're going to probably duke it out for who plays in that 8 9 game. And that's what you got in the association. So, with that being said, people, let's close it out as we always do here on the podcast each and every week with my hero and zero of the week. My Hero of the Week goes to former NFL writer and ESPN insider John Clayton, who died on Friday at the age of 72. I know he was battling a lot of health issues there over the last few years, and he was well-known for a writer going back to the 70s and 80s when he wrote uh, for the Steelers, I believe with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, was part of the dynasty there and following every step of the way with the 70s Steelers, even into the 80s, later on became part of the ESPN family, and you saw him there with Chris Mortensen being an insider there for the sport, and then moved out to the Pacific Northwest to become part of the Seattle writing fabric, and was a member of the Seahawk contingent as far as writing for them on a day-to-day basis. Well, he passes away there on Friday. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Clayton family. And then my zero of the week, and I don't even know how to put this, but 
goes to the people who run the NFL scouting combine. Because I don't know if you've watched this video of Michigan linebacker David Ojabo, who's going to be a top-round pick. Well, I don't know after this video because he was performing a drill. And during this drill, he landed awkwardly on his, I believe it was left leg, to where he crumpled to the turf. And one person went over to his aid, but then after five or ten seconds, just like got up and walked away, that he actually picked up the football and didn't even bother dealing with the player and his injury, knowing that later on, he blew out his Achilles. And it just made you think, where was the immediacy of concern by not only just the team reps, the people that were on the field, where there doctors around? I'm sure he got taken care of afterwards, but when you watch this video and the optic just looks terrible, it's almost as if this player crumbled to the ground and there was no concern for him. It's almost as if, ah, he'll get up, he'll be fine, ah, there's nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, this guy's holding his leg, he's grimacing, and I get it. It's a combine, we're looking at these players as if they're pieces of meat, as if they're, I get it, they're performing for their future, etc., but for a guy to go down, injured, and nobody rushed to his aid, nobody made a deal out of it to where it's like, hey, we need help, or to wave doctors to come in, or anything like that, it was almost as if they bend down, hey, you're all right, kid? All right, let's get the football and on to the next drill. I tell you, just an awful job. I don't even know who to point the finger at, but anybody that was involved in that scenario, whether it's the NFL itself, the officials, whomever's running that event in Indianapolis, everybody should be ashamed of themselves so they all get my zero of the week. That'll wrap it up. Episode 243, just about in the books. But as I always like to say in closing, I thank you all for taking the time out of your busy day to give your boy a listen, to give your boy an opportunity to share his thoughts, opinions, feelings, etc. on everything that's happening in sports. I do not take your participation for granted. We all know that there are a zillion outlets out there for you to get your information. And for you to just stop by here, whether you listen to every syllable, every second, or you just want to hear what I have to say about the NFL, NBA, NHL, whatever it is, I appreciate you guys and gals very much from the bottom of my heart, and I sincerely your participation, it's otherworldly for me. As you know, I'm trying to reach newer heights as we know in the coming weeks. In fact, two weeks from this coming Thursday, not only will it be opening day for the baseball season, but you're going to hear me twice a week. So you're going to get a double dose of J-Reels twice a week from the week of April 4th on. So you definitely want to tune into that. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. Let's increase the visibility of this podcast. I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. If you want to hit me up, you could do so on any of the following social media accounts. Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Send any questions, comments, criticisms, critiques, whatever you want, suggestions. Hit me up. I'll follow up with you ASAP. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this podcast, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth. whatever A dollar, five dollars, it doesn't matter. It's all going to go 100% to this endeavor, to the upkeep of the website, this whole production, equipment, etc. So I could come crisp and clear, concise, from my lips to your ears, right to your speakers, earbuds, headphones, whatever you're wearing. Because whether you do or do not know, 
This is what I love to talk about, people. It's in my blood. It's in my DNA. The passion is dripping. The fire is just fuming. It's everything that you could ever imagine a sports talk show host, or in this particular case, a podcast host, that you would want. You don't want somebody that's just going to read off stats. You don't want somebody that's just going to have some regurgitated narrative that you hear time after time after time. No, you want to hear some fresh hot takes. You want to hear just a new voice, someone that's going to be entertaining, informative, credible, especially to deliver anything and everything that goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J-Rails podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Rails podcast, on the flip, baby.